0: All right, everyone. Welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a uh, podcaster. Just finished recording another episode of my main gig podcast, Blocked Reporter with Katie Herzog, uh, who you can see most recently on Bill Maher. Recommend you check that out. also have a newsletter, jessiesingle.substack.com. That's called Single-Minded. This is sort of cousin-ish of that. I have a paid post up today about the about New York Magazine's cancelled 17 story and um an interesting response to it and the question of like who we treat as just mascots or good and evil versus who we grant full agency. Uh so yeah, check that stuff out. I don't have a huge amount on the agenda today. I um so folks should jump in the queue and just get ready to ask questions or comments on generally any subject you want. Um, what they've been thinking a lot about is like the proper role of journalists uh, when a big news event happens and it's in an area where you lack expertise and you're unlikely to gain that much new expertise. So a lot of the Dobbs and Row stuff, it's like there's this tremendous pressure to have opinions on it and to write about it. And I just sort of feel like Everyone else is doing it, and everyone else is smarter uh, than I am on this stuff. Or I think a lot of people are, and I'm torn. I'm sort of curious what people think about this because, like, I do. I don't believe in staying in your lane. I like, but if you're gonna choose to not stay in your lane, you need to actually put some time into learning about the subject in question. And there's so many experts on the abortion fight uh, that I just, I don't know. It's this weird push pull of like feeling pressure to have to say about it but then feel like you're not qualified. But also some of the takes I see seem really bad. Um, So I feel like I should push back against them, but blah, blah, blah. Other folks get in the queue. Let's just jump straight to Patrick. Patrick, what's up?
1: Hey, Jesse. Happy Friday.
0: Happy Friday. Happy 4th, almost.
1: Almost 4th, yeah. Uh, So first I want to check in on your Elden Ring journey. How are you progressing along before asking my real question?
0: yes i will instantly lose the whole audience but i uh i just got to uh what's his name godfrey today Godric, the the grafted godfrey like he's like the second real boss in the game i also just beat my first dragon the dragon in the swamp uh wasn't that tricky on horseback i'm thinking like level 37
1: yeah you you get the hang of all the different kind of stuff for it uh Horseback combat becomes pretty second nature where you really love that horse later on. Okay, so I want to get to my uh, real point before we lose your entire audience. So how much do you think this kind of pull for a journalist to be forced to write about, I guess, topics that they don't know about is part of the... uh, There's a kind of thread right now that all of current wokeism and social, social justice woes have roots back to Tumblr. And I will say this one I do believe in a little bit because there is kind of an idea of that if you're silent on an issue, that means that uh, a bad faith reading of your views on the issue can be inferred. Basically, the idea that your silence is deafening. And I feel like that's the kind of instinct where it's just like, just because you're maybe not writing about abortion doesn't mean you have the wrong views of abortion. It's very much in the line of, I don't have anything to really say on the matter because other people know more. I'm kind of listening to them. Yeah,
0: so I think the dynamic you're describing definitely takes place in different communities online. It's like you, you. Why haven't you spoken out? You need to speak out. Silence is complicity, and so forth. I think uh, to the extent that this poll exists in journalism or among like independent substack types, I'd almost blame that more on the attention economy and like the quest for like. Keyword relevance, although I think that's sort of over. It was very big in like 2015. Uh, if if Roe, it got uh, embedded in editors' brains that if a big story about Roe comes down or about Dobbs, you better be able to publish some stories with headlines relevant to Roe and Dobbs that have those search terms. And um, when I was at New York Magazine, I edited a vertical about behavioral science and And we would always look for tie-ins, like what does social psychology have to say about abortion or or the pro-life movement, and and a lot of that was just an attempt to stay like relevant search term-wise. And to a lesser extent, like on the New York Magazine homepage, because you think you figure folks are going to click on stuff pertaining to whatever someone's talking about. about. I think the rise of like social media as a major way uh, of disseminating stuff, maybe even more so than search in some cases, has disrupted some of that. But I would, in terms of how journalists things are incentivized. I would almost blame that more than those um, very real Tumblr dynamics, if that makes sense.
1: Well, I understand that. And I think that ties into the idea to stay relevant. When there's a kind of hot button topic of the the flavor of the month, so to speak, you want to be able to kind of put what your normal uh, kind of practice area is on that to capitalize on the momentum. I guess what my fear about that would be is that if you do that too often, you risk that kind of concept creep, where you take your field that may have nothing to do with it, and you basically try to stretch it out to, in order to co- encompass it. For example, if social science wasn't really saying anything about abortion at the present moment, do I really need to find some kind of fringe thing that obliquely references it in order to uh, touch on the topic?
0: Yeah. Um, no, I mean that, that that was a problem for us. Like. <laughs> I mean, I think we did a pretty good job and I think we had good restraint and we didn't stretch the science. But yeah, this is a, a challenge journalist's face. It's like you, you just this idea that you have to publish something and that you constantly have to feed the content piece. Uh, and then on the reader side, uh, in, in the live chat, Kira, Kira, Dryan Gray, Kira Adrian Gray, sorry, I butchered your name, uh, writes, it makes it hard to find intelligent articles that add something fresh to the conversation when you have to wade through everyone parroting the same slogan in log form. So the other problem is, from just like a journalistic quality control perspective, if you, via Google search or, or social media, the dumb, reactive takes, you know, they look the same as the careful, in-depth reporting, and it all gets mushed together. And there's such variance in the quality of journalism. So, um, yes, this is a legitimate problem in journalism right now. The this this race to always have to chime in on every issue. I will say, like, it's not like I I don't think that in terms of my own Substack or this show, I don't think I'm punished for not chasing that gold ring. Although if, if whenever there was a big abortion thing, I did a quick Substack with the word abortion in it. Maybe I would get subscribers. Maybe I'm leaving people on the table. I just, I don't feel the same pressure to do that. Well,
1: I, I don't know. I think the, I guess the goal of you is to find an audience that will continue to yes. go to you. I think, Problem is that if you uh, try to go out and try to reach people who aren't necessarily in the audience, if your heart isn't in that kind of topic that attracted them, you're going to get the people who come to you for a little bit, then eventually abandon you. You just got to find that base and keep with it. I
0: think the goal, yeah, the goal of Substack or a podcast uh, is to build a base of subscribers who like what you do and they're not expecting you to always chime in on everything. That I think it's maybe a deeper form of subscription where you're just like. Like when I subscribe to people, it's like, I like the way this guy thinks or I like the way this lady thinks. And I want to I like the way she shows her thought process. And I like her style of writing. I don't usually subscribe to people because I'm like, I need to know their take on every news story that comes out. Although I guess that's a genre of newsletter, too. Yeah. All
1: right. That's it for me.
0: Thank you, Patrick. We got Ben and then Pongo, too. And then other people should get in the queue too, to help uh, give me stuff to say. There we go. Thanks, Andrew. Ben, what's up? Ben, you got to uh, unmute yourself. There we go.
2: I learned how to unmute myself on Colin today. There we go. Um, Jesse, big fan of Lockton reported. Um, I just so R. Kelly was sentenced to, I think it was thirty years for some pretty grotesque behavior. So I wanted to ask you the time old question: Can I still enjoy? I believe I can fly.
0: <laughs> yes, I believe in separating the art from the artist. If people. Uh, can listen to like fascist composers. I I hereby give you permission to listen to, I believe I can fly as long as it's during a, uh, a viewing of space jam, the original space jam.
2: So, and just real quick follow up. I'm sorry. Um, Does, does your opinion change at all with the fact that most people are listening to music through music services where at least, I don't know how it technically works, but in theory that artist is receiving money. Every time you double click on that song on Spotify.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, maybe I'm just not a bad person. Maybe I'm a bad person or not like a conscious consumer, but no, I don't know. Like everyone's done bad. Well, he's a specifically bad example, but he's going to jail for 30 years. So I, I don't, if right. a, a few fractions of a penny go into his estate and he won't be able to enjoy it anyway, cause he's imprisoned. Eh, I think it's okay.
2: All right. Thanks Jesse.
0: <laughs> I like the idea of people coming to me like I'm the rabbi for, for moral guidance on fraud issues. Very bad idea. What's up, Pongo, too? Pongo, you got to unmute yourself. Yeah. There uh, we can go. you hear me now? I can.
3: Hey, um, so I, I think I wanted to see see what you thought of this idea. It's to do with, like, um, I think you, whenever you're looking at left-wing politics, you see a lot of people who are saying, like, um, such and such, like, like our, our main focus should be on the working class or... We need to go back to economic issues that are like the kind of things that like you know left wing parties were about prior to like the 1980s or so, or 1990s maybe. Um, I just wanted to ask your thought like is that really realistic given what the actual con like what the actual makeup of left wing parties now? I mean, for one thing, like it's questionable whether the middle class as like we used to envision it even really exists as a class anymore, or, or sort of a working class that is, but isn't it just a little bit unrealistic to expect a party that mostly uh, that is primarily a party of, you know, uh, upper middle class or, uh, you know, possibly downwardly mobile college graduates to like, say, like, I I get that, that a lot of it is just rhetoric, but wouldn't it be more healthy to just to just admit that this part in so far as this party represents a class, we now represent the college graduate class, which is a class with legitimate issues and doesn't always have everything added to them, and maybe there's just maybe it's justifiable to just admit what the social class we represent is and actually advocate for their issues
0: yeah, I mean that's a good question and probably not one I can like answer in a fully baked way I, I guess. I don't, I don't really know what the shift is over time in, like, the Democratic Party and the sorts of policies they pursue. And, and that's inextricably linked to the fact that politics have gotten more polarized and more obstructionist. And I do think the GOP is an obstructionist party. So, like, when you look at something like the uh, Obamacare's attempts to expand Medicaid, which really is a policy just for poor people and fierce resistance at the state level with Republican governors refusing to expand Medicaid in their state – in a situation like that, it seems like the Democratic Party was acting in the interests of poor people and uh, the Republican Party wouldn't let them. And and there's other examples of stuff that I think would help poor people, obviously getting blocked by the Republicans. In general, I do think the Democratic Party has a class problem and that the college-educated segment of it has too much sway. And that explains some of the messaging and, and some of the failures and um, – I'd love to see polling on this, but I would imagine there's a big divide when it comes to people's perceptions of Kamala Harris. Maybe someone can look this up and drop in chat if I'm right. I'm just guessing she appeals way more to college educated types than to working class types. I I don't know. I just think there's a real authenticity problem there. I don't think she's popular. And I think the idea of like someone like her waiting in the wigs as a possible replacement for Biden um, as a nominee, which worries the hell out of me because I think she would get slaughtered. I think that's, the kind of candidate you only get if you've just got way too many college grads and you're not listening to other groups. Does that make sense?
3: In the case of Kamala Harris, I think the, that's, a, that's like question number two. Question number one is, is she popular with anybody at all? Which she might not be, yes.
0: She certainly wasn't popular with Californians. It,
3: well, yeah, exactly. But, uh, I mean, she was... She was the one who dropped out of the, like, primary before the first vote because she could see that she didn't know. Anyway. But, yeah, so thanks for answering the question. And, uh, yeah.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the question. Andrew and then Justin, and the queue's empty. So other folks should jump in uh, with any questions or comments. Andrew, what's up?
2: Hey, uh, hey Jesse. So, so you yeah, asked for folks, so um, I'll, I'll, I'll wing a, an item here. So I uh, two parts. I have a movie suggestion for you. Um if you haven't seen it on Netflix there's a Tollywood movie called RRR that is the best movie ever made Whoa. and yeah and uh there should be congressional hearings about with like why Hollywood can't make movies this good anymore um R what does RRR stand
0: for is that like a spoiler
2: uh Rise Roar and Revolt and it's it has no historical like it it like two guys have the names of two people who actually existed, but that's as far as it goes for historical accuracy. But um, like at one point, a guy throws a leopard at another guy. At one point there's like a dance off where they basically beat the British empire, but it, it, it's so hard to describe. I can't even explain it, but
0: I'm excited. Best, move, it? best movie ever made. You promise?
2: Uh, I, I, you would, you would sit back and be in awe. Nice. Yeah. Uh I mean uh an experience like that with a movie since I was a kid. Because they're usually so formula now that you can see exactly where they're going. And I don't know if yeah. it's because I'm not part of, you know. I had
0: when I saw uh, Everything Everywhere All At Once, I'm not I was not the best movie ever, but I had like a there was an off factor I hadn't experienced in a long time seeing a film.
2: Uh and I, I definitely had that with this one because I, I like, it, it could be it's probably partly because I'm not part of the tech look, you know, culture, obviously. Um uh it's just so impressive in everything with the that uh, it, it, I, I, I
0: Everything what? Really you just watched. cut out for a second. Oh, sorry. Oh, man, there's some uh, connection issues. Andrew, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry, you cut out for a sec. Okay, R. Anyway, oh, that's your recommendation.
2: Yeah, RRR. Right. Uh, and then uh, I, I guess um, just to make it more timely with what you wrote in the subsection, uh, so I often kind of felt like, uh, when I was a kid growing up, they always talked about like, uh, the movie apocalypse, um, how now people couldn't think cause they were glued to their TV all the time. Um, and, and I've started to feel like that happened and that's the world that we live in now. Um, so as to what you wrote today about how people oversimplify morality, I often feel like maybe some of that's because most, not most people, but, uh, a a large number of Americans have never and especially other people in the Western world, you know, the most adverse situations that they've ever been aware of, they've experienced secondhand through movies. And I wonder if that's why there's like such a disparity in like moral intuition um, among different classes. And just your thoughts on that.
0: Interesting. You cut out a little bit. You're saying the extent to which folks are affected folks who haven't been through, true hardship for like a better word you're saying their understanding of the world could be skewed by like pop culture and sort of good and evil manichaean thinking
2: right like um uh I, in a math class i had with a guy whose parents were senators but i used to tell him that the most interesting that it, thing that had ever happened to him was that he saw saving private ryan um so 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 that he hey i i'm
0: sorry man i gotta i gotta kick you I, I'm, I'm like only hearing like two-thirds okay. of what you're saying uh there's a connection issue unfortunately uh sorry about that man I, I wanted to hear the two guy two senator parents justin what's up
4: uh hey there hopefully i'm coming through okay
0: yeah you sound okay yeah
4: yeah uh, that last caller sounded fine to me as well so it might be on your side um have you considered Ooh, okay. renaming the podcast can you hear me
0: yeah, I know. There's been there's been some issues lately. Uh as of yet, no plans to uh let me see see if I can notice anything about my own connection. Uh but go ahead with your question while I check this.
4: Yeah, sure. Um a bit short. I was curious um I asked uh, uh maybe a week or two ago, you were you had written a, another article about um, you know, a transgender study and uh I think a lot more has been coming out in the past few weeks, and a lot more that, you know, cast doubt on reasons to support specifically, um, you know, childhood gender transitioning stuff. And um, because I trust objectively, it's not really the right word that I'm looking for um, on the issue. I was hoping you could pretend that I'm somebody who thinks. Who knows nothing about the subject? And tell me why I should support gender youth transitions.
0: Man, I do think the connections issue on my end, but I just want to make sure I got that. You're you're saying, do you like the elevator pitch for why folks should be in favor of youth transition?
4: Uh, Yeah, I I would hope you can maybe go a bit deeper than that. But basically, yeah.
0: I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I, At the end of the day, I do trust like the experts who developed these protocols, who did it in a very careful and thoughtful way that involved a lot of assessment and a lot of making sure that this was the right decision for kids. Um, these were the Dutch clinicians originally, and they, their attitude was like, basically all their premises are not held by, are only held by some American clinicians. So their premises were, they thought gender dysphoria tended to go away in time. So let's track these kids over time. And the ones who it doesn't go away with around the onset of puberty, those are the ones we're going to give blockers. They didn't give them blockers until age 12 at first. Uh, and I think they didn't go on hormones till 16. All that's gotten younger. So my view um, is like disproportionately influenced by this very careful style of clinical work where... Nobody rushes anything. There's none of this like, oh, my kid just came out as trans. Let's get them on hormones in three months. And I think there's some of that going on in the States. It depends where you are. So I think people – there's a binary here where you're for or against youth transition. And um, in reality, like I think the specifics matter a great deal, like who the clinician is, what what their clinical practice is. I mean, are you um, – are you still skeptical in those like very careful Dutch style cases or, or explain like sort of the boundaries of your skepticism? Sure. I,
4: I'm, I'm going to argue like, you know, devil's advocate style here cause I don't necessarily hold all of these beliefs. Yeah. I just want to, um, so even in the case of those, of those early Dutch, uh, practices, my understanding is that the studies that accompanied those showed, you know, very minor or at least not strong, Um, actual outcome improvements uh, for the cohort that they did do.
0: Yeah, that's because the kid – yes, and I I should have said that. Yeah, that was – the kids were very carefully screened beforehand. They only put kids on these treatments who had – really solid mental health really solid familial support yeah so you had a lot of stuff of like their depression at the start was like pretty low and then by the end of the study it was pretty low years later and it's just you're right there's not much there but but we do know that like by the end of the study they were doing well like uh so the clinicians think that these were this was a subset of kids whose gender dysphoria was not going to go away otherwise and that their view is that they would have you know, suffered a great deal and that this is better than the alternative. And I I don't think it's necessarily an easy decision and it drives me crazy when people are flipping about this because it's quite serious. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm basically on board with that, but there's a lot of um, specifics there about like the diagnostic procedures, about how the humility of the clinicians. And I think we have this generation of sort of much more uh, crusading clinicians who are not that careful about that. And that's what I'm worried about.
4: Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, my, my deepest concern is and the screening methods, in the West, let's call it as uh, a bigger problem. Uh, I, I can't remember the paper, but I saw an article recently that was kind of talking about some of the beliefs and practices of clinicians and how they can be quite extreme in terms of, uh, when they will decide what to do for, for people including like one was like this crazy story about this guy who just performed like street castrations, basic stuff like that. It was wild. Jesus.
0: This was a research paper or like uh, journalism?
4: Uh, No, this was uh, a journalism paper uh, that came out, I think in the UK recently. I, I have it somewhere. I just won't be able to pull it up for you quickly on this call.
0: Yeah, can you just uh, email us to me when we get you get a chance? I should read it.
4: Yeah, of course. Anyways, uh... anyway, I,
0: I I think no, I think your question's fair, and I I think it's um, it's now so it's like hardened like concrete the idea that the default should be in favor of blockers and hormones because that's just been repeated so much. But I I have real questions about a how positive. I think the Dutch results were overall positive on a very limited set of kids, but I I don't see how anyone can say for sure they would be as positive. Among kids who weren't screened that carefully, because like even even these like less impressive results in America, it was often the same deal. They screened them really carefully and they didn't have they didn't have major mental health problems when they went on blockers or hormones. So I don't you can't really say that much about the effectiveness of these treatments if, you know, at time equals zero, the kids were already doing pretty well.
4: I don't think that the the methods plus results would hold up in most other contexts truthfully if you were to to generate the same studies for say you know should should we be giving these people some pill for some sickness um i i think that just the standards have been dropped so far in terms of what we should accept as positive evidence that um based in the case of those very well screened uh children and There probably is a a proper place and time to implement these interventions. Um, I just don't think that that line has been properly teased at all.
0: I think that's fair. I agree with you that it's very disturbing the way um, activists and clinicians who very much understand what good versus bad medical research looks like will just like pretend to not know that distinction and treat very weak, very questionable studies that in some cases tell us almost nothing as Almost dispositive. It's like it's crazy in some cases the claims they make versus the research they're citing. So I, I'm with you. I think there's a lot of reason to be alarmed about the state of um, state of this field. Basically, I guess they didn't do a good job defending them. Right. Well, thank you for, for your right there, man. Still, yeah. Thank you, Justin. Uh, no, I, I don't think you did. Have all but sorts I of. Oh, sorry, Josh. I didn't mean to cut you off. You can jump back on if you want to finish up after KW. And I, I apologize. I think the connection errors are on my end. I don't understand what's going on, but um, go ahead, KW. You're very low. Is there a way to boost the audio? Are you on um? Yeah, fucking androids, man. Uh, go ahead. I could I can hear you enough, and I'll normalize it before I post it. Extremely unhinged. Stay <laughs> off. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I I mean I can't even imagine not having it, but it. Sounds like it, and I'm sure at the time we had other stuff to complain about. But it sounds like it was much, uh, much more relaxed time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I've been telling my like not online friends for a long time that there's like no benefit to arguing about this stuff or being that engaged on a minute-to-minute level. Like the most when important news drops, it'll find its way to you and. I think the the worst thing about social media is it like confuses us into thinking we need to be on it. It's like any other addictive phenomenon. Like you think you need to be constantly in contact with it, constantly connected to it, but in fact, it just drains your soul. And it's very rare that there's any benefit to like, you know, being totally online rather than just checking in online when you need to. And but so far, you feel like you've been successful. That's uh, that's very helpful to have like something to. Distract, I mean, not distract you because it's important, but, yeah, basically distract you and, or something to focus on that doesn't involve being online. That that sounds like a healthy way to go about it. I think that was The Intercept, right? Yeah, The Intercept, yeah. Oh, yeah, Thomas Edsel. I got to read that still. So it's on my Kindle. Yep. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Uh I'm glad to hear that you're you're developing a more uh healthy relationship with social media KW and I, I hope I can follow in your footsteps. And I hope you do on well that exam, by the way. Um man, I'm I'm having real connection issues. I might have to wrap it up there. I feel bad, Alex and Kira. I'm doing another one of these tomorrow. Um I don't have a huge amount going on tomorrow, so I'm gonna do another one of these and hopefully I'll have more connection luck. I'm not sure what's going on. It sounds like everyone else can hear everyone fine at least. But um Thank you guys, as always, for tuning in. I'm sorry I have to cut it short a little bit early. But uh just spread the word if you like this show. And I'll tweet when I know what time I'll be doing this tomorrow. Just keep it on my Twitter feed. Don't keep it on my Twitter feed in general. It's garbage. But I do. That's where I announce like when I'll be doing these. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Sorry again about the technical difficulties. But uh, have a good Friday night. Bye.